Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us first in our Bloomberg 1130 studios is Charles Cantor. He's the founder and senior portfolio manager at Newberger Berman. And uh, Charles Cantor, great, for, great to have you with us here uh, in our studios uh, in New York. Let me start by just having you take a, a look at the lay of the land here. Uh, again, we had this uh, close above 22,000 yesterday. There's a symbolism therein and all of that. But what's your sense of uh, how the equity markets are doing uh, at this point? I think the equity markets um, are a story around the uh, the, the earnings – Trumps the rhetoric, uh-huh. and and as you think about the environment today, it looks very similar to to that of about two years ago and three years ago. The the narrative around um, nice nice earnings growth, low inflation, low low corporate bond yields, um, tight credit spreads or reasonably tight sp- credit spreads. It's just it's been a a really really good environment, um, and and it should 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 remain so, um, no doubt. Um, there's been a shift in in tone around what we thought Washington could deliver uh-huh. um, to to the market. Um, I think um, as you think about the rhetoric um, after the general election, there was tremendous hope that fiscal policy could deliver lots of tailwinds to, to the financial markets. Um, that thesis, of course, has not yet played out and, and certainly been pushed back a good amount. And I'd say the financial markets today believe, unlike they did three, four, five, six months ago, that Washington will deliver them almost nothing in terms of, of, of tailwinds to, to, to profits, earnings, and, and financial securities. So if your view, controversially maybe, is one where you will actually get something productive out of Washington eventually, whether that be lower taxes, uh, a tax holiday to, to bring back all our capital that's tied overseas, whether that be um, um, even more discussions around regulations and more friendly business conditions. If you believe that, um, and you you would be in the minority today, and therein possibly lies lies the opportunity. I'm not suggesting you'll get that. Uh-huh. I don't have a strong view on that. But it would be important um, as we enter 2018 that we get a little bit of of of, of push from 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 our leadership. I was going to ask you if you're a, if you're a believer, if you're you're holding that controversial view. Do you do you retain some optimism here that that's going to happen? Look, I think. It's not that popular for for the politicians, but but our financial markets, in aggregate, um, are stronger than 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 leadership over long periods of time. It's not to suggest that clarity around regulation and rules of the game, um, and certainty around that isn't a vital ingredient for making investment decisions. Whether you're a corporate CEO or an mm. asset manager. Um, and so clarity there is, 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 is always helpful. We haven't had a lot of clarity um, for a good amount of time. And, and, and if we were to yeah. get some clarity, that would, be, that, that would be terrific. The market is just fine because um, underpinning the market, earnings, depending on where you want to start, has been the story this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it wasn't the story last year. The story last year was about multiple expansion. The story this year is about earnings. Um, and, and the pickup in the global economies that started um, well before 
a new president was sworn into office. Um, and as goes those things, mm-hmm. so go the markets. And, and I wouldn't bet against that for now, even mm. though it's popular sure. to, to do so. Charles Cantor with us with Newberger Berman, really special for Global Wall Street to open uh, this hour uh, with him. It's a little bit of stagflation out of the BOE announcement. Really, really interesting tape on that 6-2 to two vote, uh, uh, David Gurr. The idea here truly of a modeled higher inflation and with a real stag element to growth and to wage growth uh, as well. Sterling at 131.64 really gives up the 132 ghost. Weaker sterling uh, over the last 10 minutes. I've been dying to ask you this question. We're on the edge of Jack Welch. All of a sudden, everybody's talking about a lack of pricing power. You basically arbitrage. You look for value. Mm -hmm. You look for stocks that aren't working. If the revenue line is price and quantity, price and volume, how does a lack of pricing power, a diminished P at the revenue line, how does that fold into your work? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? In aggregate, it's a bad thing. Um, um, And one of the things we've we've noticed, um, say, in the industrial sector, because we had a in any number of companies in the industrial segments reporting over the last um, 10 days or so is um, despite the, the, the uptick in certain commodities, which, would gener- which are input costs for most industrial companies, um, generally those things get passed along in higher prices and over time reflect themselves in, in, in more, a more stable uh, margin profile for the underlying company. Um, and and for the in aggregate again a broad generalization, but in aggregate the industrial companies showed very good volume, um, but didn't raise price yeah. um, to offset um, the the rising raw material costs. Um, we not we find that curious. Um, it would seem for now um, either the CEOs in aggregate are unwilling to. To unsettle the the Apple card, maybe they they haven't seen an environment where they've had commodity input prices go up and are nervous to raise prices, worried about um, losing market share. Um, but 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 these our CEOs need to start tilting to 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 more of being the investor and less of being the productivity manager. You know, financial engineering maybe has had its vogue, David. Can we uh, can we learn about consumer staples with what's happened with uh, with Whole Foods here over these last couple of months? I know that you were agitating for Whole Foods to uh, do more to 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 improve its business. We were doing immigration earlier, David, on television. Uh-huh. We were mentioning the immigration factor in stocking produce, uh-huh. like your blessed organic kale. Oh, yeah, the blessed organic <laughs> kale, yes, of course. I like organic kale too. <laughs> no, I don't think Tom you. does not. There we go. It's a two to one vote. Uh, what, what what can we learn about the sector as a whole from what we've seen Whole Foods go through and do here? Look, I I mean. Th- as a, there's a lot to learn. Um, specifically, David, to your question, I, I, I think it speaks to the power of the brand mm. and brands in general and what folks will pay for brands. Um, and, and brands mean something more than just price. Brands means an emotional connection to the thing or the company that you're engaging with. And, and I think you'll find um, – and you have seen in the consumer staple sector more broadly that those companies that have created unique brands are selling at astronomically high prices um, as measured by, say, um, you know, EBITDA to enterprise value. And so I, I think there will always be room for the innovators, for the brand builders, for people that, that build an uh, emotional connection 
um, with their customers. And, and those that maybe potentially the larger, larger consumer staple companies or those that are looking to build scale with, with, their, with, their, you know, with their wholesale base, they will always be looking to, 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 to buy the attractive consumer staple brands, brands in the hope of winning more shelf space, mm-hmm. in the hope of engaging the customer more. So, so I, despite all the technology um, and, and, and the idea that there isn't pricing power, um, I think investing in a brand and, and getting it right, it's, it's easy to say invest in the brand. It's a lot harder to get it right over time. But I think you'll find uh, you'll continue to see very attractive prices for for those that have built brands and have reached now, a certain scale. It includes Adidas that we spoke to in the last hour. Really important interview. Look for that out on Bloomberg Digital, as well. Charles Cantor with <laughs> us here, founder and senior portfolio manager at Newberger Berman. Uh, let me ask you uh, maybe a broad question here about what you're enthusiastic about uh, in the markets right now when it comes to sectors, when it comes to types of, of companies. What's what's attractive to you here halfway through uh, 2017? Look, I think um, companies that can produce um, believable growth mm-hmm. um, at valuations that aren't nosebleed they remain very attractive to us. I think we're in an environment where 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 growth's difficult to come by, um, and if you can, and I'm not talking about double digits organic growth. I'm kind of talking about three, four, five hundred basis points above, you know, where treasury yields are. So so call it mid 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 single digit types of things. We love those businesses. We love those businesses that they come with with less capital intensity versus more. We actually love businesses, candidly, that um, look like Bloomberg, where, uh-huh. where you're creating data sets, um, create them once and use them many times. We own companies like Verisk and, and, and IHS Market that, that would fit that type of billing. Lots of, you know, the Googles look like, look like that. Um, we love those types of businesses. And then because of where where aggregate ten-year treasuries are, we've always liked um, capital-intensive businesses that produce stable and growing um, streams of income. Um, the the key there, though, is is to make sure that their returns on equity are reasonably stable mm-hmm. over time. What what tends to allow that, on average, to happen more than often, um, more often than not, is is they in regulated businesses. Um, so these are very capital-intensive businesses. They make a small spread versus their cost of equity, positive spread versus their cost of equity, because the regulators ask them to take on the risk of bringing large infrastructure projects to market um, on time and, and under budget. So the company takes on that risk. So those those are kind of be the cornerstone um, of how we're thinking about investing. It's been the cornerstone of how we thought of investing for a long time. And then occasionally we'll, we'll find something that, that, that just – Feels like there's a shift in in, in, in in how the board and management will allocate capital on a go forward <clears throat> basis. And generally, what we're looking for is is more capital rationalization, mm-hmm. so doing more with less. Yeah. Not popular, but but so those are the three broad elements of, well, of what we find attractive. Let's use the industrial test tube. You mentioned industrials are Mr. Flaherty at General Electric. Can you get on board Generous Electric now, knowing that Flaherty is going to cut costs and do a better capital ac- allocation than the triage that Jeff Immelt had to do? I, I think we increasingly finding companies um, that are fit and focus very attractive. We actually want businesses to, 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 to separate um, their best assets, and to allow guys like us and 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 our female competitors the opportunity 
you know, to value those assets. I mean, an example last night, um, Wyndham Resorts announced earnings, and they're splitting up their timeshare business from their branded business. We think that strategy, um, if it can be done um, tax effectively mm-hmm. to shareholders, is very favorable. Uh, um, and I think one of G. Uh, listen, um, Immel did a really good job of, of of selling as many financial assets as right. he could. He was he was dealt a, a very difficult hand, I think. Um, but the challenge will be if, if, if there's certain assets there that are meaningfully, meaningf- meaningfully undervalued because they, they carry the conglomerate discount, um, those businesses should probably be put in the public markets in, independently and let, let oh. the great talent underneath GE run those businesses. Right. Thank you so much for stopping great to by. See you, yeah. Do you get, do you, whenever I go to Whole Foods, they're out of broccoli. <laughs> Do you like get broccoli? Do you have a special conduit for broccoli? <laughs> we are, we in the Cantor household, driven by my daughter Abigail, are huge consumers of broccoli. She can barely I, I know it's do a gone. meal without it. It's probably it, her. My wife is in front of the freezer. And it's that Cantor daughter. She's doing the it. The Cantor daughter's <laughs> buying up all the broccoli. By the crown. By the crown. Very good, Charles Cantor, Newberger Berman, with advice on broccoli. It's way, and it's like makeup. It's way in the back corner. They make you walk through on everything ice. to get to the broccoli. It's yeah. the farthest thing from the front door. Necessary evil. Oh, Charles Cantor. <laughs> yes, thank you so much. We continue. This is Bloomberg. Pleasure now to be joined by Peter Westaway. He's our chief uh, chief European economist at Vanguard. Peter, let me just start with your your broadest takeaway from what we learned uh, today from uh, the inflation forecast, from uh, the policy decision uh, itself. This was a six to two uh, decision. I'm struck by the degree to which Brexit is uh, is is weighing on all of this. Again, I shouldn't be surprised uh, saying that, but uh, clear from the questions and answers at least that this is uh, front and center for the Bank of England. Yeah, it's it's front and centre for the Bank of England. It's front and centre for for those of us that are thinking about what's going to happen next in the UK economy. And and while some members of the policy committee had been and, and actually still are thinking about the the worries about inflation, headline inflation picking up, it seems a very odd time to be thinking about raising rates with um, with the data coming out weak and with all of these uncertainties around Brexit. So really, the slightly dovish message that the Bank of England have sent seems to me to be completely appropriate. Slightly dovish. Help me understand what changed at that ECB forum in Portugal a few weeks back. Of course, the governor of the Bank of England speaking there, talking about the potential here to, to remove some monetary stimulus if, if the trade-off facing the MBC continues to lessen the policy decision accordingly becomes more conventional. What changed at that forum with regard to the conversation about central banking both in the UK and Europe? I think what was happening was that maybe in a slightly ham-fisted way, central bankers were trying to signal that this period of exceptional monetary accommodation wasn't forever. And so they were trying to soften the market up to a removal of policy stimulus in the case of the UK, uh, a tapering of the asset purchases in Europe, which, remember, is still adding to stimulus. It's just doing it at a slower rate. And I think that's a lesson that the market does need to, to take on board. But I think maybe... Yeah. Especially in the case of the ECB, it was overinterpreted, and I think that we've then yeah. seen a lot of rowing backwards from the ECB 
Um, a little bit different with the Bank of England because I think the data's changed. I think we've seen more information about softening yeah. economy that, that's happening here. It is a good thing to have Mr. Peter Westaway on because he has a twisted sense of economics. We now go to linear quadratic Gaussian economics, as we can only do with Peter Westaway. Peter, <laughs> Peter, I look at the mathiness of your work out of York and out of Cambridge with great respect. And it goes to the glib comments made by all suits and ties of reaction functions. Do we have a clue the linear straight line or quadratic curved reaction functions to come? Is there anything orthodox now or are we on new linear quadratic Gaussian territory? I do like it when people take me back to my, my early days. Yeah. I can only just dimly remember those, uh, those things that I used to do. Got myself. that right. Don't, don't, One over the square root of two pi. That's all I yeah, remember. Don't, don't, don't test me on it again. But, but I mean, <clears throat> you're making a, a serious point, too, which is that relative to a simple world just before the financial crisis, when, frankly, central bankers, myself included, thought that we understood the way the world worked, we knew that we had to control inflation, we put interest rates up and down, and that was really it. I think we're now in this much more complicated world where balance sheets of banks are also coming into play, quantitative easing, which we thought had been confined to the textbooks, the, the textbooks of history are now right back front and centre. So all of these things are now making life very complicated. And why that makes it really complicated looking forward for those of us that are trying to work out what happens next is that the reaction function of central banks is quite hard to predict because they don't really know yeah. how things are going to play out because this is new territory for them. This is completely uncharted territory, and so there's going to be a, lo a lot of uh, trial and error in the way they withdraw yeah. the stimulus. You know, so as the, as the Fed starts to wind down their balance sheet, everybody expects that will start pushing yield curves up, curves up, but we don't know whether it's going to happen all in one day or whether it's going to yeah, happen over exactly. two years. Uh, so that's what makes it so complicated for policymakers yeah. and the rest of us trying to predict it. Yeah, you keep us employed. Peter Westaway, thank you. Uh, <laughs> well put, Thank yeah. you, thank you, thank you. Uh, this morning with Vanguard, greatly appreciate uh, that. David Gura and Tom Keene in our Bloomberg 1130 studios uh, in New York. John Kelly uh, spending his first week as chief of staff at the White House. Of course, he was formerly the secretary of the Department of Homeland Security. Someone else who had that role is Michael Chertoff. He's the uh, former U.S. Secretary of Homeland Security, co-founder and executive chairman of the Chertoff Group. He joins us now on our phone line. Great to speak with you once again, Mr. Secretary. And uh, yesterday we had the privilege of talking with Admiral James Stavridis about what makes a good chief of staff uh, in the White House? Let me uh, turn things around a little bit to ask you about uh, what makes someone well-equipped for the job that John Kelly is now uh, vacating. You were the, the second in that position. Uh, I imagine still learning your way around what was still a very new job uh, at, at that point. What equips someone well to be U.S. Secretary of Homeland Security? Well, I think it's useful to have a perspective on where global threats are, and not just threats that are man-made, but also natural threats, because one of the remarkable things about Secretary of Homeland Security is that you have responsibility for a, a wide range of risks, uh, whether it's hurricanes or earthquakes, it can be terrorist attacks, it can be uh, even playing a role with respect to a um, massive epidemic or pandemic. Experience. Um, steadiness 
and a kind of a wide perspective, I think, are the qualifications for that job. It struck me when I interviewed uh, John Kelly when he was uh, secretary of that department, how heavily the responsibilities of the job weigh on somebody uh, in it. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Uh, I think you went so far as to say it's difficult to sleep uh, knowing that something could uh, happen. How do you deal with that, the the weight of uncertainty? Well, of course, I, I came into this having had the experience of being at the Department of Justice on September 11, 2001. And so I vividly remember the way in which we were anticipating what the next attack might be, and it was really an all-hands-on-deck effort to stave off what might be round two or round three of al-Qaeda attacks. So I came into the job with that experience. I think one of the things that is comforting, though, in uh, the job of Secretary of Homeland Security is you're working with a superb team of people. It really is not an individual effort, but it is a team effort. So you have the people who are on the border, you have the people who are monitoring and screening what goes on in aviation, and you have your partners in other departments as well. Mr. Secretary, wonderful to speak to you again. Uh, Michael Chertoff with us. Folks, you had the incredible privilege of working with John Hart Eli years ago, one of the giants of American law. And he would be, it's tragic he died so young, and he would be a perfect voice of wisdom now across all politics with the certitude that's going on right now. John Hart Eli fought every day against the certitude of this ism or that ism. Are we drowning in certitude right now, both on the right and both on the left? Well, I think maybe what you're asking me is, are we having more opinion now than fact? And I do think that that's a danger. I mean, uh, John Healy, who, you know, back when I was in law school, so it goes back quite a while, was a believer in a healthy skepticism and that our institutions were built around the idea that nobody has a monopoly on wisdom, and we want to have checks and balances in order to be able to modify our opinions in the light of experience. And I think we need to recover some of that now. Uh, It's just fascinating. I mean, 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 the prescription area. First of all, is there an opening at at, at Homeland Security? (laughs) Do you want to serve again as Secretary of Homeland Security? Would that work for Michael Chertoff? My four years, uh, four years was enough. And um, look, to be honest, you need fresh blood. I think one of the things that's useful about our system is we do get turnover. And no matter how good you are at a job, after several years, it's good to have a fresh pair of eyes. And I think that's useful in Homeland Security as well. Secretary Chertoff, a few weeks ago, I was uh, having a conversation with Sir Martin Sorrell of WPP, uh, of course, that company, among others, that were hit by a, a cyber attack uh, of a very large scale, uh, maybe a, uh, just over a month ago now. And we talked about the way his company's dealt with that and um, a move toward more coordination or conversation among companies. What do big companies yet understand about the threat of cybersecurity? Well, I think everybody realizes now that it is one of the big risks any big company faces. And just as you are concerned about your financial position or your core business assets, you have to be concerned about your IT system and your cyber, particularly because there's not just a a lot of information that can be hacked if somebody gets into your network, but it can actually interfere with your operations. And that's what we saw with the exploit that was uh, part of the attack on WPP, but also went around the world and did everything from shut down the uh, National Health Service in Britain 
to affecting Maersk shipping. When you, when you look at that attack, what does it portend to you? Are we going to see more attacks like this? What can companies like WPP, like Maersk, uh, do to prepare for attacks like this? And I imagine, of course, this is a 24-7 job fending off attacks like these. What more can companies do? Well, I do think we're going to see more attacks, and we're going to see the scale of the attacks grow. And this is really a problem of risk management. You can't eliminate the risk, but you can manage it. And some of it is a question of having a governance and a policy structure that regulates who can get on your network, what they're allowed to do on the network, uh, what kind of monitoring there is of the network. Some of it has to do with educating people so they don't download things by mistake or leave themselves vulnerable because one of the challenges with cybersecurity is you're only as strong as the weakest link. So you have to have a deliberate approach to driving down the risk over a period of time. You mention in your notes the thing that always comes back. It it doesn't matter if it's Wall Street or cybersecurity, which is corporate culture. My experience, sir, is that the corporate culture is to have the fear of God in you to go out and hire tech experts that can do the technology of cybersecurity. Are we at that stage yet? We're, we're boardroom, you know, people in suits and ties are so scared that they're actually going out and finding people with expertise in these thugs? Well, we certainly um, see boards focused on this issue, and um, part of that is getting a technical solution. But as we like to tell companies, it's about people, not technology. Yeah. In the end, the people who are attacking you are not operating autonomously. They're, they've got an agenda, and that means you've got to think about it as a human problem. So first and foremost, you have to really understand what are your key assets and what are you most concerned about protecting. And then you have to build a system of policies and practices that are designed to allow your business to function but to do it in a way that drives down the risk to the key assets. And only when you've got a strategy like that does the technology play a role in enabling and implementing that strategy. In these last few minutes we have with you, I'd love to talk some about immigration. There was a remarkable exchange yesterday during the daily press briefing at the White House about immigration policy, the president coming out in support of a piece of legislation on Capitol Hill that um, doesn't enjoy a whole lot of uh, support from, from all Republicans. Uh, a conversation about merit-based immigration. Of course, immigration is something that you had to deal with when you were at the Department of Homeland Security, and I know uh, you've been on the Immigration Task Force at the Bipartisan Policy Center uh, as well. Do you see a path forward at this point for immigration uh, reform amidst all that's going on in Washington, D.C.? Where do you think this this falls in the hierarchy of, of conversation about policy? Well, I do think immigration reform is important, and it's long overdue. We talked about doing this Uh, 10 years ago when I was at the Department of Homeland Security. And I think that the surprising fact is that if you really look at the serious proposals, there often isn't that much difference. It tends to be more a matter of rhetoric and, and argument than it is substance. I think we all believe that we should have a regulated system of immigration where we know who's admitted, what they're doing here, and we can check when they come and go. And I don't see an argument against that. I think we also believe we ought to have a way of regulating and controlling the borders and and not just have them open to human smuggling or drug smuggling or other kinds of of, uh, uh, unauthorized activity. The question is, how do you get there in a way that is humane and practical and efficient? Which company is your best practices company? With your earned prestige in public service and your work 
for years now in security and cybersecurity. Is there a company that's the best practice company? Well, I, I don't want to endorse a particular company. I'd like to say that the companies uh, on whose boards I serve, I think, do take cybersecurity seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, the boards do monitor what goes on, not at a microscopic level, but um, they do get a, a report from the chief security officer. There are metrics. Uh, when there is an issue, they drill down into what the cause of the issue is and how do we correct it. And again, it's not trying to convert a board into a technical operating committee, but it is having the board exercise oversight and making it clear to management that it treats the issue of cyber risk as a top-flight risk. One general question, sir, I have to do this with your clerkship for William Brennan years ago over to the Supreme Court, and we'll let you go on with your uh, day. How many justice decisions are we away from a conservative Supreme Court are we one justice away, two justices away, or could it be even further? You know, I would say that um, generally, if you look at the way the court breaks down, it's uh, tips to what most people would call conservative um, by about five to four. But certainly Justice Kennedy on some issues takes positions that uh, mm-hmm. conservatives probably would disagree with. Obviously, if you get one or two more conservative appointments, that's going to tip it more in one direction. But one thing I'd emphasize is this. Please. A a lot of times people think that the composition of the court or the orientation of the court is political in the sense that an election outcome is. And it's really not. If you look at Justice Scalia, who was a wonderful justice and I was privileged to, to be friendly with, sometimes he took positions that he believed the law required that many people would not regard as conservative, for example, where he ruled in favor of a criminal defendant. Mm-hmm. When I was a judge, I sometimes made decisions because the law required it, even if on a personal or political level, right. I might have disagreed. And the beauty of our system of the rule of law is that judges of whatever persuasion apply the law faithfully not based on their personal preferences, right. but based on a well, philosophy of law. Very valuable. Michael Chertoff, thank you so much. David Gurren, Tom, if you love that conversation, look for that out on iTunes. Our podcasts, subscribe today. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.